Hello. In this edition of Health on the Line, I'm proud that we'll be focusing on anti-racism. First, discussing the Confed's new anti-racist strategy with my colleague Joan Sadler, and then exploring the practical importance of this work with ICS Chair Lena Samuels. For some lucky people, this is a time of year when they can wind down and relax. Sadly, as we all know, the reverse is true of the health and care system. Industrial action has now been heaped onto the already massive winter pressures our leaders face. Responding to what we've heard from our members, we at the CONFED have become increasingly outspoken about the need for the government to enter negotiation in good faith and for the trade unions to work with leaders to try to minimise the harms and risks to patients. As well as talking to members just about every day about winter challenges, I've also been asking them about their experience of system working. These conversations have been given an added relevance, given our role in supporting Patricia Hewitt's review of accountability in the NHS. Patricia has come up with some powerful principles in the initial interim part of her work, and we're really looking forward to working with her in the new year as she explores how to apply those principles. We'll be looking to engage members from across our systems in those conversations. Finally, before I speak to Joan, this has been our first full year of Health on the Line, so thanks for listening. Next year, we're going to be trying out some new ideas, so do please keep tuning in. And I do hope that despite everything, you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the changemakers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. So I'm delighted to be joined on this edition of Health on the Line by a colleague of mine. And, you know, I don't think I've interviewed a colleague on Health on the Line before, so that's uh, a bit of a thrill. Interesting to see how that interaction works. <laughs> um, so the colleague who's joining me is Joan Sadler, OBE, Director of Partnerships and Equality uh, here at the NHS Confederation. And... Um, we're taking this opportunity, Joan and I, to have a conversation to mark the publication of the Confederation's uh, new anti-racism strategy. Commit, understand, and act uh, is its name. So, Joan, first of all, uh, I, suppose, I, suppose, I suppose I have to say welcome to Health on the Line, but in a way, it's your podcast as well. It's our podcast. But anyway, welcome, Joan. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, it's our podcast. Uh, and how are you? I'm good. Yeah, very good. And glad to be talking about anti-racism. Uh, it's timely. So uh, I do another uh, podcast for the RSA, and that's about books. Um, and I always start with the same question, partly because it just puts people at their ease, but also because it is interesting in itself, or so I think, which is, well, why did you write this book, is what I say. So I'm going to ask you the same question, which is, why now? Why is it important for the Confed to be publishing this strategy now? really important now because we're now starting to deal with so what do we do now that we've got all this information particularly from the workforce race equality standard that has held up a mirror at least for the last 60 years that tells us racism is a problem in the nhs right 
So now we're lining up not only resource, but offers to our members, and we're writing a strategy that is more than just a program that is short term. It's the strategy that the board totally is behind in terms of saying we will support our members, uh, particularly after the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 and also the Black Lives Matter movement. There's something to be done and it's, and it's about time we start actually actively being anti-racist rather than talking about equality and racism. Let's look, Joan, at the, at the way that the, that the report, which I commend to everybody, it's a short, powerful piece of work, very oriented on what we can do. It's not long and wordy, but, but very focused. It's got a structure, hasn't it, Joan, around this notion of commit, understand and act. So let's, let's look at these three things in turn. So by commitment, I think what we're saying is that the starting point has to be a real desire, a deep desire to address uh, racism in all its manifestations in the health service, but also in terms of the outcomes that the health service achieves. Joan, you've been in this space for quite some time. Do you, do you sense, where do you sense that kind of level of commitment is now, I mean, I guess if I was to describe it, I'd say there was a kind of moderate level of a commitment from some people, but really not universal, not that deep. Then we had Black Lives Matter moment, and it felt then there was a real change, a much deeper commitment. But in the last few months, a combination of a kind of anti-woke backlash and also just the incredible pressures the health service of under is under has kind of slightly lessened that sense of collective commitment. Would that, would, is that your, would, would that be your, your, your view as well, Joe? That's an interesting one, uh, actually, Matthew, because what I pick up is that from our members, our leaders, they have seen that backlash, particularly in terms of wokeism, a word I don't really use because it makes no sense in the current media parlance, uh, but they've seen that and they've said, actually, we're chief execs, we're chairs, we don't agree with this, actually. And what is it that we can do to actively now be anti-racist? So that's one thing. And again, that's not the full uh, survey of all our members, but that's the feel I'm getting. And the second thing is they want to know how do we then ignite that commitment into something else? So that's heartening. So you feel that, that, that we have passed a certain point, that, it, that, that people aren't going to be knocked off track now, that that commitment to tackling racism, other forms of bigotry and exclusion, but we're focusing today on racism, that that, that is, is deep. It's not going to be knocked off by a few newspaper headlines or a couple of kind of comments by politicians. No, it won't be knocked off, but there is absolute risk in us not being able to properly formulate what it is we want chairs, chief executives, non-executives to get right. What is the ask? What is the support we can give? And that's the bit that we've got to be very clear on so that it fits the, the operating framework of this time where there is anti, you know, uh, anti-discriminatory uh, feeling, not just within the NHS, but in the public in general. There has been this stoking of wokeism and our leaders will put their heads above the parapet and actually it will be challenged, they will be challenged. And so we need a way of making sure we're speaking with them, we're arming them, and we're making sure that their commitment then isn't 
uh, diffused by all of this challenge that will invariably come because what we do know about racism is that if you're going to challenge it, if you're going to be practically anti-racist, then actually the challenge will come. And that can be on quite a personal level, which our leaders maybe haven't experienced before. So we need to arm them. Interesting. Look, I, I would share that view, Joan, when I speak to leaders, um, the commitment they have to tackling racism and tackling inequality both within the workforce and the population it's not something that i have to go kind of ask them about it it's very often one of the first things that they want to talk about in terms of their their their, their mission but yet let me make a little kind of confession to you which 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 i think does point to the need to be kind of vigilant on this um, and for none of us to kind of be complacent about our commitment so the other day I was chatting to a journalist who was a sympathetic journalist uh, talking about the health service and the financial challenges that it faces. And she said something along the lines of, you know, I know, Matthew, that it's, you know, all this stuff that says you're, you know, spending huge amounts of money on, you know, racism awareness training and diversity officers. You know, I know this is just a kind of, you know, crude attack on you. And I found myself, Joan, saying, no, that's absolutely right. You know, it's a tiny amount of money and, you know, the, the really big. And what I should have said, of course, was, well, yeah, but that's important investment. You know, if we are spending money on training people about racism, we are spending money on getting people to understand what is involved to be genuinely diverse, to tackle health inequalities, that's money well spent. And it's because we didn't spend that money and didn't spend it in the right way that we find ourselves in the situation we're in. So I just, I'm, I'm not, this program's not about me, uh, Joan, but, but you know, I, 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 after that, I kind of, I reflected on how quickly I myself got into a kind of defensive, oh no, it's only a little thing at the edges. Don't, 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 don't talk about it rather than defending it. Mm-hmm. There are two things for me there. And thank you for sharing that because people almost get into this defensive uh, uh, stance, which is learned behavior in healthcare, right? And so I'm not just talking about for now, if we think about where we've come from as leaders in healthcare, where in 1948, we set up the NHS to tackle essentially inequality, you know, so people didn't have to choose between feeding their children or paying for a doctor or medical care, right? Essentially, that was one of the big drivers for setting up the NHS. We've now got into a position where if we say, well, we're actually spending money on that core proposition of making sure that people stay well, that we're free at the point of need, and that all people, irrespective of who they are, can access a service, uh, apart from the class divide, which is very prevalent in 1948, then spending money on tackling such inequalities, whether in the workforce or for those who we provide a service for, those patients and people using our services, that should be critical to how we use our resource. And yet, We've, we've learned almost not to talk about inequality because in the latest terms, it seems wokest, ridiculous. So I think back to the support, we need to make, have our members take that commitment further. It's about how we arm them with that strategic nature of what it means not to perpetuate inherent inequalities in the policies and procedures within the NHS, which is leaders. We can do. My colleague who co-facilitates the BME Leadership Network talks about this quite a lot. You know, we can perpetuate such behaviours unless we're actively aware of them 
and then we're supporting people not to do so. And it's one of those strategic uh, uh, conversations we'll be having with non-executives, particularly as chairs and also executive directors and CEOs, as to how we arm them with that information. Um, but this is notwithstanding that racism is in our society, right, Matthew? So um, let's just put it here on the table now. There will be some colleagues who are racist. That sounds a bit stark, but that is the evidence. That's what we're dealing with. What we're doing is we're going with, let's say, that tipping point of members we know want to actually challenge racism. Yeah, and I think we have to understand commitment as having two dimensions. One is is a personal commitment. You know, it is about whether or not you yourself are up for trying to make change happen, recognizing that you might be part of the problem, willing to ask tough questions. But it's also about saying, look, it can't just be about your own kind of conscience, because that's not strong enough. And it's not it's not about individuals, it's about structures. So you therefore got to also say, look, commitment is about building capacity, institutions, which make sure that even if you as an individual stop thinking about and working on this you're going to be reminded and that's where i think you know the role of our uh, bma leaders network is really important so that's about saying look we are committed to this but you know we've got a powerful group of people we bring together who are going to make damn sure that if there are signs that we are no longer committed that they're going to get us back on track most definitely and i like the um the, the proposition of two areas we know that personal racism we all have some isms in us, but personally, we deal with those issues. But actually, within the NHS, it is the structural and systemic barriers that we really need to remove. We need to challenge them. We need to tackle them. So what are they? And it goes further than recruitment processes. It's about the way people access services or not. It's about the judgments we make on who receives particular services uh, there is so much that we can do if we really systematically start looking at what are our, our, our policies and procedures that mean that the NHS, either by design or default, is racist. Again, hard to countenance. People think, are we? Well, okay. If we talk about sexism, it's it's almost there is no challenge. And I'm not. I'm juxtaposing these just for as an example that we can challenge when we think it is the right thing to do and we're committed to it. So we wouldn't countenance, right, having conferences where there isn't very near 50% of women uh, who make up our population who are also represented in our conferences. We wouldn't countenance that there aren't women at the top of organisations. When it comes to racism, Dr David Williams, Harvard professor, talks about the, the empathy gap when it comes to talking about people from racialized communities and dealing with racism. There is an empathy gap that can be scientifically evidenced where people don't feel as, as though the, these communities are deserving. You know? And that's quite, that's quite stark when you think about it. So again, I'm giving you that as an example to say, let's start to remove that systematic barrier that might appear in our policies, the, the ability for somebody to have a subjective choosing of who is promoted and who isn't. Let's start really challenging some of those things that happen that then affect the care we also give to patients. Because if that's happening for staff, can you imagine? 
our impact on the hair, healthcare we're giving to patients. Yeah, thanks, Joan. And and, and just to say before we move on from Connect to, to to understand that that in the strategy under each of these headings, there are we identify some of the things that we are doing that we're offering to our members. So under Commit. Uh, um, offering for folk to join our ICS Diverse Boards Improvement Programme, which is for NHS chairs and chief executives, uh, access to to support for chief executives and chairs, our leadership framework for health inequalities, our improvement programme there, and also access, as I said, to our BMA leadership uh, network. Um, Now, moving on to understanding, lots we could talk about here, Joan, but let's just start with the relationship between what we refer to often as EDI territory, which, and you'll you'll help me here if I get this wrong, which is, you know, primarily about employment practices, and then the health inequalities agenda, which is primarily about serve, you know, how we serve our patients, how we treat our patients. Joan, what, what when we think about understanding, how should we understand the relationship between analysis and action in those two areas? So the analysis is that actually within health, we've separated out what legally we are supposed to do by uh, being accountable for following the Equality Act. We've separated out the Act into two different silos. The Equality Act talks about dealing with both workforce inequality and health inequality in the same breath. <laughs> We've separated out the two things into silos in healthcare historically. Why? That's not for me to answer. But the Equality Act says you have to tackle workforce inequality and you have to tackle access to services, the services people get, the outcomes people receive. That is also within the Equality Act. So there's a spurious kind of wall that's gone up and I'm not sure why. If we look back at what our accountability is for reporting currently within the NHS on tackling both workforce and health inequalities, that's currently within the Equality Delivery System 2022. That's a system that has been going, uh, that's been around since 2011. And the Equality Delivery System simply says, how are you doing on workforce? And how are you doing on some of your chosen areas to tackle inequality? Now, that was since 2011. Now we have a place where EDI is talked about as just being about workforce, when actually it never was. And and under our mandatory reporting, it isn't. But not disputing, I'm really glad that we've got a lot more money being thrown into health inequalities now. So let's work with what we've got. There is uh, NHS England totally supporting the workforce agenda and tackling inequality, we will work with it. There is a health inequalities program that has received a lot more prominence in the last couple of years with some great leadership by the National Director for Health Inequalities. Let's work with them. But I suppose what I'm saying is our members are now saying, how do we bring these two areas together so we can report on them? And that's the bit where we need to, again, work with where our members are. They want to keep them separately. We'll keep them separate, but actually there's something about understanding your your accountability for reporting on these areas is under the same act. And the act says, here are nine protected characteristics, but we don't want you to just report on that. We want you to report on those groups as well as other groups that may be facing hardship, such as a traveler community, such as those who live in rural areas. 
Um, we want you to be able to make sure that you're fulfilling your public sector equality duty so that in fulfilling that duty, you're making sure that you're having due regard to the needs of these people. And indeed, you're fostering, uh, you know, challenging inequality and making sure that those groups receive the services they should. So what we do then here at the Confederation is play to the two agendas because our members are in different places. Some keep the issues separate, some keep the issues working together. We'll follow that logical trajectory because if you're going to tackle inequality, really you need to be talking about all of them, don't you? Yeah, and it's always seemed to me that although we don't achieve the level of diversity at the most senior level that we would aspire to, we do nevertheless in the NHS have a very diverse workforce. And yeah. you know, if you want to find out why it's proving to be difficult to make preventative strategies work, for example, in minority communities, then who better to speak to than your own staff mm -hmm. from those communities in order to understand what they think might be happening. So I think that these are these are linked because, you know, human beings experience both, uh, can experience both a sense of exclusion um, and prejudice at work and also be part of communities that, right. that, that, that feel that. Now, Joan, one of the great assets we've got when it comes to this question of understanding the foundations of racism, particularly in relation to health outcomes, uh, is the Race and Health Observatory and the work of Habib and his team there, you know, a small team, but achieved an enormous amount in terms of what they've produced and the impact they, they've had. I know you work really closely with the chair and the chief executive of uh, the RHO, but that is that's such an important asset for us, uh, isn't it? And and it was quite a struggle, I think, to to to, to create the RHO. Yes, it was. Uh, I think when we started as an NHS, taking seriously the idea that we needed to understand the evidence base, particularly from a workforce point of view, and more latterly from a health inequalities point of view, which we're doing now. But back then, in 2015, 2016, we didn't even have a workforce race equality uh, standard. And so the Equality and Diversity Council, which I co-chair with the NHS chief, chief executive, the chief exec at the time led a conversation at the EDC that said, should we have a focus on the workforce race equality standard? After quite a hard-hitting uh, and very um, interactive discussion, let's put it that way, the res was agreed, the workforce race equality standard. And that set the train for us being able to say, actually, we need to do a lot more in terms of race and health in the NHS, because everything we've done before is not yielding the results you would like to see that we're actually tackling and bringing down the, the inequities for racialized communities in health. And so res was formed. And then later on, uh, uh, only two years ago, the current chief executive, along with the then chief executive of the NHS, agreed funding for the Race and Health Observatory. And what a triumph. We now have a bank of UK-based data and evidence, well-evidenced uh, academic research that talks about uh, at least 12 different areas through 12 publications of problems for people from racialized communities, the staff from racialized communities and a bank of evidence as to what organizations our members can do about those issues. And so with the Race and Health Observatory, we're working on 
making sure the information is disseminated and our members are using that evidence so that we start to close the inequality gap. Um, making that connection from the workforce to health inequalities is something, again, the Race and Health Observatory are doing very well and very much supported uh, by my team here at the CONFED, across the CONFED group. Um, and there are other aspects of this understanding um, uh, in relation to the kind of reporting within uh, the NHS, which you've spoken about um, already. Also, this growing interest in population health, of course, that's critical to the ICS's purpose. So that, for me, is about a, a broader, deeper shift that we're trying to achieve from an, uh, from an NHS which incentivizes activity to an NHS that incentivizes outcomes. Right. And it seems to me if you incentivize outcomes, you immediately start to think about health inequalities in a ways that you don't really if what your focus is is on activities. And then I think we also refer, don't we, in the in the strategy, Joan, to some particular offers we have for certain kind of critical figures within the health service. For example, uh, our project are working with the NHS England Chief Nursing Officer around anti-racist practice in nursing and midwifery because we've seen in some of the unfortunate challenges we've had in certain uh, maternity services that that sometimes racism is a, a dimension of, of of what's happening there. Let's turn, John, then finally to to act because I think that I mean actually I would say this going back many many years there's been this kind of credibility issue which is well you know you're committed you can talk about it you understand it but in the end why is nothing changing you know why is nothing happening and i'm interested joan in in what you feel is critical to to turning all of this uh into action so we're talking about a reformation that possibly is uncomfortable uh potentially throws up the order of things and throws out the current order of things when we look at reforming power structures and systems, right? Those power structures and systems enabling racist practices impacting communities need to then be forensically looked at. Now, the proposition some of our members might say was, well, do we know that? And what we do need to do is work with members to look at the evidence of where some of those racist practices are impacting our communities. We know this is happening in maternity services. We know it is happening in sickle cell services. Increasingly, we have evidence of elective care practices where there is unequal access uh, to, to, to elective care services. Again, the Race and Health Observatory have the evidence, and it's about helping our members to work through what it means to dismantle the structures that have enabled inequality that actually help everybody once we start doing that. And we can see that happening when we look at harassment and grievance processes. Dawson and West at the King's Fund specifically point to the corollary that when you make things better in terms of processes and procedures that impact racialized communities, you can see the better response and raised performance for all staff when it comes to bullying and harassment. So there is something about using the evidence. The second thing I'll say is that our confederation-wide commitment to tackling equality and diversity and inclusion is based in evidence. 
And so when we see the gaps in evidence, we start to drill down to what more can we do. So again, our women's network, our women leaders network, our LGBTQ plus network, we all have slightly different things that we're targeting, actually, because there are problems in terms of leadership or how people use services for all our groups. But the BME Leadership Network targets something that is just about people being able to be in leadership. And our anti-racism strategy then says, well, why have we only still got, I think it's either 10 or 12 chief executives now, which is a great improvement on the three or five that we had three years ago. But Matthew, let's do the maths. <laughs> you know, surely we should be having at least 20% of people in healthcare who work for the health services, surely there should be 20% across the leadership strand as well. What we're seeing is that they're all at the bottom of the pile or if they're lucky in the middle. So there's something about acting on the evidence uh, to go past commitment to making sure that we're lining up what do targets, outcomes look like as we support our members. And that's what we're doing. A key part of the strategy is saying we're going to actively support members to increase the numbers of people from Black, Asian, and minority ethnic communities in the workforce to hit the targets that the workforce race equality strategy has outlined for the last six years. You know, it's critical in both employment outcomes and health outcomes that yes. ultimately we measure our efficacy in terms of a shift in the outcome. You know, in, in in the actual numbers. You know, if it's not if it's not there in the numbers, then it doesn't matter how much commitment or understanding there is. We're still We've still got a long way to go, and and Joan, as you as you mentioned, the the way we decided to kind of underline this commitment to action in the strategy was to ask our colleagues in the other networks, the other nations within the Confed, about the work they were doing in this space, trying to underline that this is not just about the work of the kind of EDI team or the work of the Race for Health Observatory. This is the work for. For all of us, and so in the strategy, we refer to the work in the primary care team, the mental health team, our Northern Ireland office, our Wales office, and, and so John, you know, this is a isn't an easy question to our, our answer, I know, but but how supported do you feel across the confederation that this is an agenda which which we are trying? I don't think fully yet, but that we're trying to own, and that's certainly I know what what Victor, our chair expects from us the ownership by my colleagues there's absolute commitment and what i like about this strategy is it's very there's a phase one that says here's what we're doing and it's quite inelegant actually because when you're tackling racism that's what it is it's not smooth it's not nicely packaged some of our networks will be doing a lot more than others but they're doing something and it's showing that and then it's saying within the next six months, we're going to work with each of the networks and our internal corporate functions because we have an internal strategy and objectives that we need to fulfill also in terms of anti-racism. We're going to work with those networks to really make these offers member-led, but also appropriate to each network and what their priority is to solve something when it comes to anti-racism from each of your networks. And that's the second phase that we'll be working on. So this is an honest appraisal of where we are now. My colleagues are really open to having that guidance, that idea of how do we bend our resources so we're actually doing what it says on the tin and we're tackling racism as opposed to uh, a wider 
equality, diversity, inclusion target that isn't really a target. Yeah, and I, I found, Joan, that one of the moments in this process that was very powerful was when we did, when you and I said to our colleagues in the executive team, look, we want in this report to to refer to what all of our networks are doing in this space. Yeah. And our colleagues, some of our colleagues said, well, I, I'm uncomfortable with that because we're just not doing enough. And, and I think you said, well, look, that's the point. The, the point is it, 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 it you know, it, let, let us make the commitment to try to act across the confed. And if there are areas where we don't feel we've developed a big enough offer, we're not clear enough about it. Well, let's be open about that. And yeah. actually, I think that was a really, you know, the NHS, look, we often say, don't we, we don't want to blame culture in the NHS. And then sometimes we say that, but then when it comes to thing we really care about, when we feel let down by our colleagues, it's very easy to adopt the kind of language of blame. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was a really powerful moment when our colleagues trusted you, me, enough to say, look, okay, I, 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 this has made me realize that we need to do more. And and it felt like an empowering moment. And, and, and I'm glad that there is material to report, action to report across the CONFED in the, in the anti-racism strategy, but a lot more to do uh, as well. Leading this work is challenging because you're doing something that hasn't been done before. We're talking about an anti-racism strategy, not a race equality one, an anti-racism strategy. And as Dr. Adam Rutherford pointed out, he led on our BME Leadership Network annual lecture. He pointed out it's not enough to be non-racist, and we're bringing out a blog on that um, soon. That will be available for members. But it's not enough to be non-racist. You have to be practically anti-racist. And for me, that means you're sticking your head above the parapet all the time, you know, leading on inclusion issues across the piece and then digging deeper into those issues that actually are hidden. So the empowering moment, this is a, this is a bit, Matthew, I quite uh, like, is that when, the, when we brought the strategy of the board to our trust board that said, we're not going to, you know, just put in a load of training and development pe for people, we are going to do a little bit of that. We're going to make sure that our members are focused on the strategic priorities that say, how are you viewed in your community as a place where people feel they can bring their whole selves to work? Remember, our Shattered Hopes report is telling us that over 70% of current BME leaders don't want to stay in the NHS too long because they're suffering racism. Yeah, that's the kind of context we have. So if we as an organization can support members to understand the story of anti-racism and then actually deal with that story in terms of who wants to come and work for us, not only are we covering off a critical workforce issue, which we know is you're going to need staff and you're going to need to attract staff, but our board also said, okay, let's go for how we make sure that organizations are strategically dismantling policies and procedures that enable racism. Let's make sure that we don't do a soft touch, you know, smooth paper that, is, that, that covers warts and all. And the discussion we had at the board when they signed this off, which had challenge and which had support, is where we need this agenda to be. Not that everybody nods their heads and then kind of says, well, we won't deal with that. Thank you very much. You know, we'll just, we'll just let them get on with it. So there's some real momentum that we need to translate out to our members that this is real for us. We're putting our own house in order because we're not known as an anti-racist organization, the NHS Confederation. That's one of the tasks. But then how can we 
enable our members to be known as an anti-racist organization as well and that's about a lot of intention and that was really that was a supportive moment for me you know i think i think what that underlines is that the confed's new strategy commit understand act our anti-racism strategy is not the destination it's not the end point it is a milestone in what will be a very long important and in the end i think joyful journey Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Joan, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. After chatting to Joan, I caught up with Lena Samuel, who is chair of Hampshire and Isle of Wight Integrated Care Board. Lena, we're going to talk about some of the issues I've just been discussing with Joan. But before we do that, tell us a bit about yourself. You are chair of the ICB, but there's lots of other things that you do uh, as well. So my career in actual fact has spanned a variety of different disciplines from starting in further and higher education, moving into um, PR and comms, and now really um, predominantly within the NHS, um, as you say, chairing the Hampshire and the Isle of Wight Integrated Care Board. And, and I think you run a company as, as well, providing communication and training for, for people in leadership, human rights, child protection. Have I got that right? You have absolutely got that right. And that's taken me to wonderful parts of the world, working for UN Women and, and UNICEF, and looking after and predominantly training people in the public sector on protecting vulnerable victims and witnesses. That's been one element, as well as working on the leadership agenda for um, policing, health and um, NGOs and so on. So I have a handful of people who I look after at the moment, but um, yes, just a handful. There isn't a huge amount of time to do much else at the moment. Um, tell me about the the particular challenges to you, you think in terms of equality, diversity, inclusion in relation to the health service. I think my initial reflections are that we speak about the agenda as if it were a very broad and all-encompassing agenda. And I think it's important to recognise that people have a variety of different experiences. Um, And whilst they have different experiences, as with many organisations and sectors, it's sometimes very difficult for people to be able to feel safe enough to speak up. And people are worried about the onward um, implications for them um, and any judgments that may be made. So I think we have to think very carefully about how we create the right environment for people to thrive and to be able to um, feel that they can speak up when they need to. And Lena, what's your, you've been a leader observing these issues, experiencing these issues for a long time. So for me, there's a conundrum, which is that if I think about what's happened during my life, I've seen racism go from something that people would casually express tolerated on mainstream television to something which now to be accused of being racist is you know there's not many worse things to be accused of but yet when you see surveys of how people from black and minority ethnic community experience life they seem to feel there really hasn't been a decline their their, their experience of being excluded um, of being ignored, of being marginalised, of of suffering racism, is is if anything greater than it has been in the past. What what do you think is is happening there, Lena? I think the, there might be a cultural shift in the external narrative in terms of people 
um, a bit like smoking, knowing that it's not culturally acceptable, socially acceptable to perhaps hold a point of view that others will would not um, uphold. But um, perhaps privately, people may still hold different views. Mm. And um, when working with individuals, cohorts of teams, um, the safe space I mentioned should be for everybody. It should be um, not a case of people worrying about talking about what their thoughts and ideas are and being afraid of judgment or being afraid of being politically incorrect, but actually being able to bring forth the values that people hold, the reasons that they hold them, um, the behaviours that they subscribe to or may do covertly or sometimes in an unintended way. So I think we probably need to move forward to be able to allow people to speak in a non-judged way in order to begin to perhaps change genuinely at the heart and mind what people think and feel. And you can't do that if people don't feel are tiptoeing around, if you like. So uh, as a leader, you have a responsibility to try to improve the health of the population of Hampshire and the Isle of Wight, but you also have a responsibility to oversee a system getting the best out of the people who, who who work for it when you're talking to other leaders or to colleagues how do you talk about the effect of racism in terms of the impact on people's health and in terms of the impact on our, our capacity to get the best from our colleagues it's important to bring to the fore the impact that racist behavior has on individuals it really you know, creates an absolute negative consequence on people's mental health and well-being. And it's very difficult for an individual to manage that and the associated stress and anxiety that that causes. And of course, people can be distressed for some considerable time after they've had an experience, and particularly then if they're holding back and they're not um, they're not speaking out. So I think it's really important for leaders to model inclusive behaviours um, and to, you know, I think really strengthen allyship because there are a lot of really strong and positive allyship behaviours, if you like, if I could describe it as such, where people do step forward and call out in a supportive way behaviours or attitudes that may not be appropriate, but also ensuring that everything we do in every way, it is wired into the way that we think and the way that we behave, because if we don't get it right for our people, then we're most definitely not going to get it right for our populations. So in our Confed anti-racist strategy, uh, you know, we we use the the structure of commit, understand and act. So commit to anti-racism, understand the nature of racism and the way that it impacts and then act. There must be actions that follow from that. Does that kind of structure of, of commitment, understanding, and action, do you think that's the right way of thinking about how it is we get from where we are to where we need to be? I, I think each pillar is absolutely spot on. I, I wonder whether understand needs to come before commit because you can't commit right. unless you really know and understand what it means to be truly inclusive, um, to 
wrap your arms around diversity um, and to understand the consequences of when we don't get this right for our people and our populations. So I think the understanding is absolutely important. And I think it plays back to that working through people's ideology and why they hold the views that they do. I think out of that then you can grow that sense of commitment through understanding um, and, and then that enables people to launch themselves forward to act and behave in a different way because, of course, the behaviours are then what people see and um, either create the culture where people feel welcomed and safe and able to do the work that they want to do for our people um, and to act positive. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. I guess it's all... They all kind of go together. One leads to the other, and then you circle around and think, "Well, actually, we need to understand more." So, I speak a lot to to system leaders. We represent ICSs, and and we talk a lot about how ICSs have to provide a different kind of leadership from the leadership we've tended to have in the public sector. So, a real focus on empowerment, on enabling, on facilitating, on adding value, not being a kind of traditional layer that focuses on kind of regulation or grabbing power for itself so within that context within that idea that system leadership has a different kind of quality to it what is it to be an anti-racist system how do we combine that way of thinking about leadership with our commitment to anti-racism i think our key role is to be an enabler and we're connecting people um, in ways that perhaps they have not been connected um, before so we've been working through um, the way that we deliver our services but we've never really had the opportunity to step back and look in together with a range of stakeholders so there, there's great practice in and around our systems we need to connect that and we need to enable people to do things in a different way and in a better way for people yeah and i've seen in some systems that um a focus on particularly on health inequalities, can be something which does enable a different kind of conversation. It does enable to people to put aside their kind of organisational differences and focus on a, a shared goal. Lena, at the end of my conversation with, with Joan, uh, I talked about, uh, we talked about the idea that this should be, that anti-racism should be a joyful process, that, that often when we use that phrase, partly because of the way it's been demonised by, by various kind of political interests, it feels quite heavy quite worrying people feel frightened of what it might mean and how they might be exposed or that they don't know how to do it or that it's focusing on negativity but do you agree that actually if we get it right the pursuit of genuinely inclusive diverse cultures can be a joyful process oh absolutely and you know that's the reason why we go on holiday because we want to go and explore different cultures and find out about different ways of being and listen and hear how a different way of thinking about things can sometimes have an impact on what we do and how we do it. And that is exactly the same thing that we need to be doing. We need to be celebrating our journey of exploration as we discover different cultures. I think what people might come to realise is that so much that we have prevailing in our own culture at the moment actually is no different from what we go and explore elsewhere. We have so much that over centuries and centuries we have adopted through explorations and it's become embedded in our way of life. 
So when we think about originality, I think we have to really look long and hard going back way, way, way back before we then realise that actually we've always been blended cultures, people, stories, um, ways of living, ways of thinking. And in that, we can celebrate what it teaches us to be truly human. Yeah, it's fascinating. And that links, I think, doesn't it, to a kind of asset-based approach, which is one of the other things I hear from systems is is particularly working with the community to develop to develop a more asset-based approach to health and well-being. I think it's it's the lived experience, isn't it? I don't want to talk about people as assets um, because people are people. They're not they're not you know sort of things that we move around on a on a chessboard as such. Um, people come forward with their ex- their lived experience, their ideas, their perspectives, their insights, and what you get from diverse communities is diverse ways of thinking and also diverse approaches to problem solving so you can think differently about what we're doing things that we have perhaps struggled with for some time we suddenly realize that actually someone in our community has got a solution and we need to be speaking to them so I think it's about the insights that diversity brings for us that helps us to move forward positively with shared learning well, Lena, thank you so much for your time. It's great to talk to you and it's um, great to look forward to the work that we'll carry on doing with you at the Confed. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Matthew. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast.